0: One, two, three.
1: Welcome to Three Song Stories. We're the show that taps into music's power to connect us to our pasts and the stories they contain. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Caniery. Our guest this week is Nick Walters. Nick grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and graduated from Miami University in Ohio, where he got his degree in finance, and that's where he started his career. But during his senior year in college, he took a wine-tasting course, and it opened his eyes, mind, and heart to the world of wine. After graduating, he spent three years in corporate banking while wine remained a hobby on nights and weekends. Then in 2020, Nick made a huge career change to follow his passion. He left his job in finance and moved to Napa, California, where he spent time at Cake Bread Cellars and Chapelet Winery. And in 2021, he joined the team at Eleven Madison Park, a three Michelin star restaurant in New York City that's frequently named as one of the top restaurants in the world. Now as a sommelier there, he helps to oversee one of the most awarded wine and beverage programs in the world and gets to live his passion every single day. And it comes our way via episode number 300 guests, Rebecca Shaw and Ben. And Gold. Hey there, Nick. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? I'm doing very well. So you're there in St. Louis visiting family, huh? I'm here in St. Louis setting up a microphone in my parents'
0: basement. Are they excited that you're on a podcast? I I would say that they,
1: much like many things in my career that we'll talk about, they are excited and also slightly confused. Uh, I hope this next question makes sense, but I'm going to go out on a limb. So, what was your favorite Excel macro? <laughs> My
0: favorite Excel macro uh, is not even just in Excel. It is the, the toggle between tabs, which I think not just people that uh, only use Excel use, everybody can use it on their Mac or, or PC, but it's basically a command option tab, and that just toggles you in between
1: all the different uh, apps you might have open and I use it still to this day religiously. Okay. Um so uh you grew up in St. Louis, is that true? I mean, I know you're there now, but you know, I guess, you know, where did you grow up and how would you characterize the musical background of your growing up? Yes, it, it is true. I grew up in St.
0: Louis. I grew
1: up in a suburb of St. Louis
0: called Webster Groves, which is where I am now. I'm in, you know, the same house that my parents had all growing up and that I grew up in, and I would characterize the musical background as eclectic. I think that uh, I and nobody in my family would have described us as, you know, an overtly talented musical family by any means. But I think that music was always around. We were always listening to music and the taste um, of certainly my parents that they passed on to to my brother and I was very, very eclectic as maybe some of my songs will will show uh, that I've chosen today. But I think we were always listening to a really wide range of genres and artists, and that really came because that's what was playing around us. I think in the car or in the house, both my mom and dad never really were bound in by by one genre or another, and
1: so we kind of picked up on that ourselves, and that's how I would describe my music taste to this day. Um, If I ask you to flashback and try to remember a memory that has a musical association, what pops into your head? A memory that has a musical association?
0: I think... I think for me, the the really early musical associations, and I'm sure that this is far from unique, but I think a big one is sitting in the backseat of my dad's car as he's driving us to school and and home from school every day, and I think listening to whatever he wanted to play, uh, and and therefore what I liked, um, is a huge musical memory. That's what flashes back to me. And then for some reason I actually did not expect this, Mike, but when you said a musical memory, I thought of um a very niche memory, which is a thing that we did in St. Louis called, or they did in St. Louis called Shakespeare in the Park. So every summer they would have this big, I guess you would call it, theater troupe, uh, come come to the local park, which is Forest Park, which is actually a, a huge park in downtown St. Louis, and they would put on not just musical performances, a lot of plays too, but musicals as well. And I thought of um, the the troupe there playing sort of like they were doing warm-up for, you know, if they were playing like The Tempest that year, these guys would come out with, you know, little old timey instruments like lyres and and do a little bit of warm-up, mostly for the kids that were getting impatient in the crowd. Hmm. Did you ever go up in the arch? I have been up in the arch. Excellent question. Um... The gateway to the west, and I think the last time that I was in the Arch, the, the first and last time, as many St. Louisans will tell you, <laughs> was uh, maybe we'll call it third grade field trip. Uh, we went as a class. You go up, and if you haven't been to the Arch, I know listeners are really tuning in this week to hear about the inner workings of the St. Louis Arch <laughs> um, and what it is. Is sort of like. Um, Orb, I want to say, or like spherical pods.
1: Have you been up, Mike? I have. As a very young yes. child, I'm trying to see if my memory corresponds is, is with Nikos what you're Kloster's describing. claustrophobia coming back to you right oh, now? Oh, yeah. I, I always <laughs> described it as a barrel. I felt like they set there us up in a barrel. Yeah, that's kind of what it is. is. <laughs> I'm I was making it a
0: sphere, but it really is a barrel. And they put you in this kind of pod that feels like an escape pod in Star Wars. And it takes you very, very slowly up to the top of the arch. Uh, you do get a little view uh, of the city, which is always nice. And then it is wonderfully swaying in the breeze, which is absolutely terrifying to me as a kid who's who's very scared of heights. Do they still let people go up? I believe they do. Uh, to my knowledge, they do. And like I said, I've had friends and uh, my girlfriend, who is not from St. Louis, have all visited me. And they've all asked, should we go to the Arch?" and maybe i should just start taking them because i have not taken anyone else there or mm. up it at least since i was young
1: do you remember the first time you saw music performed live that wasn't the shakespeare thing
0: ooh yeah i think i think the first time i saw music performed live let's see it would have been does does musical theater count yeah Even if sure it's not shakespeare yeah i think i think it would have been my Parents and in particular, my mom had a huge passion and has a huge passion for for musical theater. As a fan, you know, not that any of us were really performing in musical theater, but it would have been, I think, going to see Wicked on Broadway. Mm. And that was uh, one of the very first shows my mom ever took us to see. It was incredible, and that's a huge, huge memory for me as a kid because since then, I think I've seen the show probably fifteen times in various uh, venues, but that is one that I remember, you know, moving me so much as a, as a young kid. I'm sure that there was, you know, I don't know. I was going to say I'm sure there was a concert that my dad took me to, but the first one that comes to mind, I was more like in high school and he took me to guns and roses, which sticks out as an early, early memory as well.
1: Was that wicked trip the first time you were in New York city?
0: The wicked trip was the first time I was in New York city. That's true. I never, I never put two and two together like that. Um, I don't know why, but yeah, it definitely was. Did you go, I'm going to live here someday? <laughs> I said, look at me now. Um, <laughs> I think, I think that even then I did always have a drive to live in, you know, a big city. Um, weirdly enough, I think in middle school and high school and even college to a lesser extent, I didn't have the one city that I didn't think like I must live in New York City that kind of came later, um, that drive to live in this particular place that I, I do love so much. But yes, I think early on visiting New York and my mom, not just that trip, but my mom would always year in and year out say, you know, we're going to go to a couple shows a year in New York because that's how you get in and see the hot shows. Um, and sometimes we'd go to Chicago as well to, to see some great shows there. And of course, we saw tons of local theater here in St. Louis, which is amazing. But I think those early trips of it's not just going to one show. We would go to like three shows in a weekend, see some amazing things, go out to a couple of amazing dinners, you know, eat some pizza late at night, which felt like the most insane thing in the world. to me, we would you know get pizza, and it felt like it was two in the morning. It was probably 9 p.m. But <laughs> um, it, I do remember feeling like this is a really special place, and then later on, maybe subconsciously, at some level. Um, I did feel a drive that, you know, I need to be in this, in this city.
1: Well, speaking of musical, uh, musical theater, it's time for your first song. Absolutely. And it is indeed musical theater. Do you guys get a lot of musical theater songs on the show, Mike? We've probably had, you know, a dozen over the 300 or so episodes we've done. So not a ton, but yeah. Love that. I was, I was hoping not to do something to, you know, try to try
0: to be obscure or anything like that. So I hope this song resonates with, with people as well. It's one of my all-time favorites from a few of the all-time greats. This is, you know, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Donny Osmond performing Andrew Lloyd Webber's song from from Joseph. I'll let you intro the song. You do really well at that. Um, do you, am I telling the story first? Am I, or are we playing the song first? That's on you. Mm. I think uh, uh, the quick intro for me is that this is one of the early shows that we saw. Certainly, I did not see the show live, uh, as this was slightly before my time. But this is one of the first shows that my parents bought us. The, I guess it would have been VHS uh, of the show, which I only now, I'm not, not exaggerating, this week realized was just a recording of you know the original cast in uh, either on Broadway or in Canada, wherever they were. And I always just thought this is a movie and, um, we listened to it over and over and over again. My brother and I were obsessed with it. This is one of the shows and one of the songs that got me obsessed with learning and memorizing lyrics, which has to this day been something that I needlessly obsess over and has absolutely no use in my everyday life, but I continue to do it. Um, so without further ado.
1: Did you just say that you just played it on VHS a couple days ago? Did that actually happen? It did happen. Your parents have a parents. VCR is what I'm getting. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's actually why I came on the podcast was to talk about <laughs> the old machines
0: that my parents have that have completely lost relevance. Hmm. Even the DVD player really has no no uh, place in the modern home. Hmm. And they have, I I want to say four um, But yes, I'm actually looking right now, Mike, at a wall of both DVDs and VHS tapes, and my parents... Here, I can, um, we'll attach their address down in the uh, bio for the show, and anyone can come by uh, in the St. Louis area if they need to play a VHS tape.
1: Well, let's listen to this, uh, imagining it not on VHS, but a finer recording. This is Nick Walter's first song today on Three Song Stories. This is Donny Osmond performing Andrew Lloyd Webber's Any Dream Will Do from Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. As he alluded to, this is the 1992 Canadian cast recording.
0: Oh, man, the young Donny Osmond. Um, I love that song so much. And what it makes me feel, one is I was fighting myself not to sing along to it the whole time. I was like going to mute my mic and start singing to it. It, it does sort of, uh, it's sort of impossible not to sing along to it. I love that song so much. And maybe in a different world, or maybe this world, <laughs> i I would love to find... The karaoke bar in New York City where that would be an acceptable song where maybe people would would sing along with me to that one because that's my ideal karaoke song what it makes me think of it makes me feel was a memory that I have not thought of in a long time listening to it was I was I'm maybe let's call it 12 or 13 years old and a big big part of my life (laughs) other than Broadway show tunes which we've talked about enough uh, was hockey, I played hockey growing up, and my dad is still a, a high school hockey coach here in St. Louis. My brother played club hockey in college, and it was sort of it was everything when we were kids was our hockey teams, our hockey trips, hockey practices sort of dominated our lives uh, and probably my parents' lives as well and one of the memories that I have was is going on a hockey trip when I was probably twelve or thirteen. And I took with me my very first iPod that I had, the original, or at least what I think of is the original iPad, iPod, sorry, the one uh, with the turny dial. Yeah, on. the kind of
1: bricky one now in retrospect.
0: The bricky one. And you know what? I'm already realizing that I've said the wrong thing because it was the first iPad, iPod video, the one that you could play oh, music right, video right, right, on, right, right. Which was a huge deal for me at the time. I remember being like, this will change my life. And... Uh, Mine was black and it was sort of bricky and it had a video screen that now would probably look so tiny. Um, But I brought this with me on a a really long hockey trip to Quebec, to, to French Canada. And we're there for a little over a month. And it's this really big, really important tournament called Pee Wee Quebec. And anyone that played hockey growing up will know what I'm talking about. But the long and short of it is that you're away from home for a long time and for me one of the comforts of home that i had was my my trusty iPod video and i really really underprepared in terms of downloading songs and videos um in a time when songs were 99 cents and videos were like a dollar
1: 29
0: hmm. and uh i really think i had like one music video and i had you know a handful of songs and a few of the songs were from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, obviously. And so I listened over and over again to any dream we'll do uh, throughout the day or when I was getting ready in the morning. And the most the time that it makes me think of this long walk to this, this memory is me trying to go to bed in what really was a stranger's house in Quebec uh, on a hockey tournament. And I think I would put my headphones in, put on Andrew Lloyd Webber, Uh, and listen to it and that was sort of like my my comfort song now that i think of it and (laughs) i'm sort of embarrassed to say what the one music video was that was downloaded oh it's
1: too late now i I was gonna uh, ask so but now it's too late well yeah
0: yeah no i we're in way too deep not to say it well uh listener at home if anyone was guessing (laughs) this is to give you some context probably like 2006 2007 uh and the Song and video was Beep by the Pussycat Dolls. (laughs) How many times remember that little ditty? uh, Yeah, how many times (laughs) did you watch it? Way too many times, (laughs) way, way too many times every single night, and I don't know why. But Will I Am and the Pussycat Dolls, I was not a huge fan of the Pussycat Dolls, I just had this one song in this music video. And it fascinated me. (laughs) And uh, I listened to it and watched it so many times.
1: I don't want to like paint with too broad a brush, but it seems like there might not be a ton of overlap between youth hockey players and uh, Donny Osmond. Would that be accurate? I think that's absolutely accurate. And
0: my life since that age has been just slowly uh, finding my people that are interested in both of those things?
1: Were you like focused on hockey primarily in high school, or like what was going on? Where did you fit in in high school?
0: Yeah, I was definitely. I think that I was. I was a good student in high school. Um, so, so school was a big part of my high school experience. I went to a really excellent high school called St. Louis University High School uh, here in St. Louis, and hockey was a huge, huge part of not only my. Um, my focus but also my social life my friends primarily were friends that were on my high school hockey team or my travel hockey team and yes
1: short answer yes what position did you play primarily I was a center all of growing up and then I was a left winger in high school did you aspire to go on and play hockey you know professionally or semi-professionally I think you alluded to your brother sort of doing that
0: Yeah. I think that if, if you would have asked me this exact question while I was listening to Donny Osmond and the Pussycat Dolls in 2007, I would have told you unequivocally, I'm going to be a professional hockey player. Uh, but that did not happen. I think that, uh, in high school, in high school is probably the time when I started to focus on other things in my life. And I also, (laughs) I also had the realization, I know this is a, an audio only recording, but, uh, I'm, you know, under six feet tall. And I think I started to have the realization in high school that I was not going to be uh, a huge person. And so that played into uh, into professional sports aspirations as well. And truth be told, my passion for the game of hockey was really strong. I don't know that my passion for practicing hockey was strong enough to lead me to to doing it for a living. So I did hang,
1: hang up the skates proverbially after... After high school, what did you start to like? Point your attention toward when you started to make that realization, and you know that had to be at least kind of difficult because you had immersed yourself so deeply in hockey. It
0: was difficult. I think um, all but a very select few that play hockey and in, in any sport have to have that realization eventually. And I think I was in denial for for a while. And in high school, when I finally made the realization, okay, so. You're not going to be a professional hockey player. So, what does that mean? Number one is that I need to find a way to make a living in my life because I had this plan and uh, it's not working. Um, So, what can you do for a living? So, I think I started to point my attention towards career aspirations for sure. Um, Late in high school, early in college, was sort of all about networking uh, and pointing my attention at people that I knew in my life. In my circle, uh, that were successful, and um, a lot of people around me. So talking about mentors um, and leaders, and also you know friends, parents that had done really well. I would see what they did, and I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll do that. And that sort of leads into your very first question, the, the Excel macro question, which we're <laughs> burying the lead a little bit. But I, I did decide to get my degree in finance. So that was my, my major in college. And then I worked for about three years in, in banking as well.
1: Why did you choose Miami University in Ohio? Amazing question. Uh, a great school. And I think it was first on my radar, funny
0: enough, because of their hockey team. They uh, have had and continue to have a really, really excellent hockey program. And so that is how I, I had heard of them as, as you know, it's not a school that every single person in the country, I'm guessing there's some people in Florida that are are Googling it right now, uh, some listeners. But I had heard of the school, I'd heard of the hockey program. And then the answer was pretty simple. It was, I toured a bunch of schools, I visited a bunch of schools. A lot of them had great business schools. And I think, you know, Miami's business school, the farmer school of business was and is excellent, but it wasn't head and shoulders above a few of the others. You know, I was looking at Boston college and Indiana university, uh, amongst others, Ohio state too. And when I visited those schools, I did the generic tour, right? I'm with my mom and we stayed in a dorm and we had a tour guide show us around the campus. And then when I visited Miami of Ohio, uh, I'll give a little shout out to my friend, Chase Berger, uh, who is, who is a professional hockey player now, but we visited with him and his older brother, Jimmy, uh, who was a sophomore in in college at Miami at the time, and was in a fraternity and had a bunch of friends. And instead of staying at the dorm, we stayed with him, and he showed us around. And I thought, well, this is the most fun place I've ever been in my life.
1: I must go to school here. <laughs> I totally get it. I totally get it. Um, and it was as simple as that. Um, any musical memories associated with your time there? Yeah,
0: I mean, I think I think that the musical memories associated with my time at Miami are probably more of, (laughs) are probably more of party, party tracks. So a genre of music that has slightly fallen out of my repertoire since college, but a lot of, a lot of EDM, a lot of electronic dance music, um, a lot of hip hop and rap and remixes therein. Uh, So that's, that's primarily what I think of is way too big of speakers. I was, I was the social chair of our fraternity in college and I transported a lot of very large speakers to and from, Uh, event spaces and houses and parties and
1: that's the musical memory i think of with miami
0: what fraternity i was in the fraternity called sigma
1: pi okay yeah Uh, um so did the fraternity used to hold like like big old wine parties instead of cake parties (laughs) (laughs) because i know wine kind of entered your life sometime around here right it It is sometime around here. I
0: wish I could say that it was because we did extravagant wine dinners. People doing uh, like,
1: people like doing wine bongs and. Yeah. You know, wine, there was wine Open wine Mike,
0: drinking. It, <laughs> <laughs> it unfortunately was big old bag and box Franzia. Um, and so that, that was not the start of my passion for wine, but it was at college. So that's, that's true. I think um, the, I guess it would have been, yeah, my senior year, my senior year of college, I took a class with a dear friend of mine uh, that was called Wine Tasting. It was Viticulture and Enology is the name of the class at Miami, which we're so, so lucky to have that program at Miami. It still persists to this day with the same professor, uh, Professor Jack Keegan, who's amazing and really makes it a, a cool environment for, let's just call it what it is, myself included, students that know nothing about wine going into the class, um, as, as it is for most college students, especially those going to school in Ohio. and so. We go to school, or we go to this class, I should say. And I won't lie to you, Mike. We took it because it was a class that it happened one night a week. It was Thursday nights at seven PM, and you can only take it as twenty-one-year-old seniors, so you were able to drink in class. Mm. And my friend Ian and I said, "Well, this sounds interesting." We're both we had both accepted jobs at uh, at banks, you know, to work in finance, and we both thought, "Well, we should know something about." wine. Maybe we'll have to order wine or we'll have to certainly drink wine at client dinners going forward. So, let's let's learn a useful little life skill here. And that was as far in depth as we thought into it. Uh, and we quickly got into the class and realized that a lot of people had the same thought of Thursday nights, let's have a drink before maybe we go to a party or before we go out with our friends. Um, so, it started as that. And then maybe after the second or third class, we were like, this is really interesting. And certainly, I was really, really taken by The world that opened up in front of me um i didn't expect that i didn't expect to see all these different countries around the world and to see the way that food and wine play together and the way that a culture might grow out of their food and wine um offerings and to see a way to travel around the world and a way to see new places and then I really quickly found that I was drawn to the sensory application of it as well. The, the blind tasting, the blind uh, assessment of wines, which was really a fun challenge to me as well.
1: Hmm. Well, we'll leave that there for now and we'll do your second yeah. song and then we'll pick it back up. Uh, so how would you like to do the second song? The uh, How do you pronounce the band, by the way? Is it the just- band is pronounced just like the word
0: camp. It is, there are two A's in it, um, but it is it is camp. Okay. You want to tell a story you want to listen to it? Yeah. Quick, the quick story is this, is that um, we're slightly fast forwarding. I've now graduated college and uh, worked for a few years in investment banking in different cities in Ohio, in Cleveland and Columbus. And uh, at the end of this stretch, so I'm about three years out of college, a little thing happened in, in March of 2020 that some of you may remember back home, which is that we all were told to go home for a couple weeks and that we would uh, come back to work in about two or three weeks, and that ended up being a little bit of a longer stint than we might have imagined. And that was really the the time in which I took a few days, a few weeks, to reflect on where I was at in my career and to say what's the next step. And during that time, uh, I was with my amazing girlfriend Tatum, who has been a huge musical influence on me and who has much much sharper taste than me in most things, including music. And she's kind of showed me some really incredible bands and performers and artists and camp is one of them. Camp is actually a band from Ohio uh, and was introduced to Tatum when she was in college. She passed it along to me and we became sort of obsessed with them together. And so this is a song that we listened to constantly in the early stages of the pandemic. And I'll, I'll sort of finish the story after the song, but it is the song that we were listening to a lot when we were taking drives and talking about, well, what would it look like? What would you do if you were to quit your job uh, at JP Morgan? What would it look like if you were to leave the world of finance and do something different? And so that transports me right to that memory.
1: Hmm. And just to be able to transport back into that time, because that was such a weird time. Like, you know, we Weirdest all we time. all have that collective memory, you know, in yeah. some in some regard. All um, right, everybody, let's go back to 2020. Yeah, March. let's go back to March 27th, <laughs> 2020, 10 days into the year and a half off. Um, this is Nick Walter's second song. This is All the Debts I Owe by Camp from their self-titled album released in 2016. This is three song stories. We call this biography through music. That's really nice. Yeah. They're they're an amazing band and uh
0: somewhat recent band and Tatum and I have been lucky enough to see them perform live a couple times, mostly in New York, and they are they are pretty awesome and like I said, definitely a song in a band uh that transports me right back to that time that decision making process.
1: I you know, we've done 300 plus episodes so we've done like 900 songs and i'm actually going to go look that band up and maybe listen to some of them which does not happen very often but that is so like in my my wheelhouse
0: that is the ultimate compliment, Mike, and thank you. I feel like we need like a a soundboard sound for that when Mike is going to go look up the song or <laughs> when
1: he actually really, really likes it. Like a cash register band. going, to ching <laughs> <laughs> Um. ching uh, So before we start talking about how you actualized your pivot to wine, um, what did you like least about the finance job world and what did you like most?
0: That's an excellent question.
1: Yeah, I think...
0: What I liked the most certainly was the people. I worked with some really amazing and really, really smart people. Um, And that I always found fascinating and found enlightening. So I loved working with and meeting new people and the part of the job that dealt with people, I loved, was excellent. I loved going into new industries. A big part of my job at JP Morgan was going to companies that we were lending money to as the bank and sort of diving deep into their industry and into their business specifically. So you got to have some really interesting conversations with you know, companies that produce steel coils or other raw materials that you never thought you would learn anything about. And so I loved that part of the job of meeting new people, of exploring new industries. Um, and there was a lot of intrigue there. The part that I did not like my least favorite part we will call the minutiae of the job. I really disliked sitting at a desk for eight hours, many, many days, uh, and using those Excel macros that you mentioned, which became monotonous. I really did not like being by myself, sitting at the desk, and diving deep into numbers for hours and hours of a day. I found it um, maddening.
1: Do some people in that job just love that kind of stuff or do they just put up with it because it, you know, pays pretty good?
0: I think there are both. I think there are plenty of both. I have friends, dear, dear friends that absolutely love it, that absolutely love diving deep into uh, an Excel spreadsheet or diving deep into an income statement or balance sheet and digging through it. And I think that those people, we need them, right? Like there are people that have a passion for numbers and have a passion for details like that. Uh, and then, yeah, there are tons of people, I think, that one way or another um, have found their way into finance that you put up with it because it pays pretty well.
1: So I'm going to guess that from the time you took the class that let you drink in college to the decision to pivot toward wine, you had been keeping up with the wine world. Was that like your side passion, your hobby somehow? Exactly right. That's exactly how I describe it. And I think I had
0: been keeping up with it, keeping tabs on it. And honestly, furthering my appreciation for it, I had been reading lots of wine books. I, you know, out of that class, I really developed a great relationship with the professor, Jackie, who gave me a ton of great advice um, on books to read or documentaries to watch. And so, around that time, I read books like Karen McNeil's, you know, the Wine Bible, and I read the Wine Folly book, and I read uh, Andrew Zorali's Windows on the World Wine Course. All these books that are sort of intro level. Wine books, and those got me fascinated. And then I watched a documentary, um, "Cash Register Please Ding," because Mike, you should watch it. It's called "SOM," SOM documentary, uh, which is a huge, huge look into a world that I did not know existed. Which is the court of master sommeliers, the the group, the governing body, I guess you could say, of the world of sommeliers, and follows four hopefuls as they prepare to take. The Master Sommelier Exam. And it's a really fascinating documentary and shows a career that I did not know was possible. And it was a big moment for me at the time. I didn't realize quite how big right away, but I just knew, oh my God, these are fascinating individuals. I see them. I want to be like them. How can I do that? Could I ever do that? Uh, And now to have you know, not to skip too many beats, but to have relationships with a few of the people that I was watching that film and also to have worked uh, in some capacity near them and to be, to be close to achieving that in any way has been a pretty incredible ride.
1: How long between watching that movie and driving around in the car during the pandemic? Let's see. Not a lot of time. I was watching
0: the documentary and a a couple months later we're driving around during the pandemic and I'm talking about, okay, well, if I were to do another path, what would it be? And once we got out of the car, (laughs) I I would make a list and I wrote down literally by hand pen and paper. um, And I still have the list actually in my, in my childhood bedroom upstairs. And it was just a list of things that are making me passionate, things that are bringing me joy, making me feel driven, making me want to get out of bed in the morning and and spend my time and effort on it. And I made this list that's probably 12 items long. And I didn't think much when I was writing down; It's just quick, you know, first thing that comes to mind. And then I sat back and five minutes later came back and looked at the list. And my big realization was, okay, none of these have anything to do with finance. All of these items... Uh, not all of them, I get. I should say. A good amount of them are related to wine, to restaurants, to fine dining, to beverages. And that was the moment when I sort of had a, a snap to and I realized, oh, I've been fostering this passion. I've been fostering this hobby um, of mine on the side, but really it has overtaken and it is, it is the thing that I think about more than anything else. So th- that is also when I realized that I had been Spending more time thinking about restaurants, thinking about wine, researching both of those things, then really trying to further myself in my career that I was currently working in. And that's not a great formula for success in that career. So I decided uh, to switch the careers. And it was really in that moment. And it seems sort of crazy to say that it was that quick, but it was that quick. It was sort of like, okay, that's where I'm at. Here's my list. Now, the next step is, okay, I got to get out of this career that I'm in and I got to find a way into the world of wine. So how am I going to do that? And that is where I am sort of thankful for the amount of time that we all had. I was working from home at the time. Oh, right. Yeah, that's, yeah. So I'm, I'm working from home, right? I'm working remotely and I would use my mornings and nights and tons of time in between uh, researching what careers exist in the wine world, I thought, you know i don't I don't want to just quit my job in finance and go work at a restaurant because at this point, I still thought,, I'll never work at a restaurant. That doesn't seem like me. Um, so I not only researched on the internet and read tons and tons of stuff about wine careers, but probably the most importantly, I shamelessly reached out to via email and phone call every single person that I had ever met that worked even remotely in beverages, in wine, in restaurants. Um, so I had, I had been to the Napa Valley. I had been to the Finger Lakes in New York. I had been to Champagne all just as a consumer, as a person that was interested in wine. And, um, I reached out to people that had hosted me at wineries. I reached out to Psalms at restaurants that I loved. I reached out to, uh, family friends that worked in beverage distribution and wine and liquor distribution, and not so much asking for jobs, more like This is what I'm thinking about doing. What's your advice? Where do you think I should start? And the overwhelming majority of them told me to go work for a producer of wine, a winery, right? They said, Here's where I'm at in my career. And lots of them were psalms or wine directors or um, high up at a winery. And they all said, If I could start my career in wine right now, I would go work a harvest at a winery because now I can't, because now I have a house. In a family. And I can't just sort of leave and go live in a, a different country or a different city uh, in a wine region and make wine for three to four months, because it would be impossible at this point in my career. So that's what I decided to do. And also adding into that equation, no small part in that was that, um, well, nobody was really hiring in March and, and April of 2020, because of the pandemic. So certainly, Those jobs at restaurants were non-existent. Those jobs at importer distributors, non-existent. Nobody wanted to hire anybody, but they needed harvest interns and they needed them bad, actually. So I went on a little website called wine.com, winejobs.com, sorry, winejobs.com. Hugely important in this process for me. And I applied to, I'm going to say probably 50 different wineries, all advertising for harvest seller internships. And I had zero experience in the world of wine. What I had on my resume, was three years at a, <laughs> at the largest bank in North America. <laughs> and I had a degree in finance. I had one course uh, of of wine education in college. And I had taken, I, I sort of skipped this part, but my friend Ian, who took that class with me back in college, when we were working in banking, we both decided to take our intro exam with the Court of Master Sommeliers, sort of... Um, as for fun, really, you know, we we wanted to further ourselves and say we know about wine in some capacity, so we did sign up for take and pass the exam. Uh, not only with my friend Ian, but with his parents as well. They both took it with us, and they both passed as well, which was wonderful. And we thought, well, now we officially know a little bit about wine. And um, I I ended up doing really really well on the exam. And one of the master sommeliers who taught the the course and the exam came up to me after and shook my head and congratulations. So where do you work? And I was like, um, I work for uh, the asset based lending team. Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he's like, you don't work at a restaurant. I said, no. And he said, Oh, have you ever thought about wine as a career? And so that, that was another, another moment that was sort of like leading me towards how do I find what to do in this, in this world of wine? And, hmm. Of those, of those 50 harvest internships that I applied to, I probably heard back from eight. Um, two or three of them offered me jobs, and I took a job at the winery that I knew the best, that I knew the name, and it's called Cake Bread, Cake Bread Cellars. Um, that was my first ever wine job. Worked to harvest for them, an incredible, incredible experience. And the idea was, okay, I have a job now. I have an offer. That I have accepted but then I quit my job and about three weeks later loaded everything up that I owned into my car and drove from Cleveland where I was living at the time to St. Louis stopped for a few nights at my parents place and we drove as a family my family uh, escorted me and helped me move from Ohio
1: to California were your family and friends cool with the big pivot? Because I can see in some cases there might not be a whole lot of support for secure job at J.P. Morgan, To Is this where Blundstone boots come in, by the way? I've been wanting to ask a Blundstone <laughs> boots question, but, you know, going out west to, to be an intern at a at a winery. This this is exactly where the Blundstones come in. And that is a really good
0: that's an important question Um, That. I'm so so lucky that they were supportive. I've I've had tons of moments where my family's love and support has been important. None more so than that. And I think uh, it sort of went like this. I said, "Hey, mom and dad, I'm I'm thinking about quitting my job. I'm thinking about total pivot, total career change, and moving into the world of wine." And when I described the job that I was applying to, I think they said. Okay. And my dad was like, okay, so what are you going to do exactly? I think he was, you know, he wanted to know more details, but as soon as I sort of explained it to them and told them how passionate I was about wine, how I had been fostering this as uh, a real love and a real a real thing that was bringing me joy, even just as a topic, he said, "Well, that's what you have to do." Hmm. And that was really important to me to get the green light. Um, and I think, I think that had I not been given such a green light and such a enthusiastic yes, and how can we help you? It would have been a lot harder. Um, I think my friends were also apprehensive. I have a lot of friends that work in corporate, the corporate world and in finance. I think they were all like, okay, um, you know, same kind of question. What is it exactly? And I think a big question was, can you make a living? Like, can you, can you make any money working in wine? And I was always sort of like, I think so. I think you can. And what I found to be so true, and I'm so glad I found it to be true, is that if you work hard enough at something, and also if you really care about something and and you are invested in that world, if you are willing to just dive deep into a world like wine, like beverages, like fine dining... Um, that passion does really shine through and I think can lead you to some places where you're going to be at the the upper reaches of that world. And I think I have found that certainly to be true about an amazing, amazing industry, which is the world of wine.
1: So if I'm doing the math right, you know, it wasn't long before you were in New York City, you know, I working at 11 Madison Park where you started as a server, it says. So you just went there and got your foot in the door, basically?
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was quick. It was really quick. My time in Napa was was shorter than I would have liked um, because truly living in Napa was incredible. An amazing place to live. Uh, If you have ever been out there, it's a beautiful, beautiful landscape and an amazing area of wine country. Uh, I worked to harvest and then I worked in another winery called Chapelet, which is an incredible family-run winery up on on Pritchard Hill in Napa. And I did a little more, um, they call it an ambassador role. So sort of like Touring people around the estate and pouring them wines, and I can't overstate how relaxed and amazing of a job that was. Uh, and during that time, I started to get a little bit of the bug of okay, I want to be, I want to go, you know, listen to Broadway show tunes. No, I wanted, I wanted to be in a bigger city. Really, <laughs> is what it was. Um, I did feel the drive for a little more excitement in my in my mid twenties, and so I'm in Napa. I met some people that were kind of plugged into the the fine dining scene, I met uh, a gentleman who was a wine director at 11 Madison Park. And he told me that they were reopening the restaurant. He said, we're going to reopen 11 Madison Park after the pandemic. We're putting together a reopening team. Are you interested in joining? And I was taken aback because I had never worked at a restaurant before, but I was so, so thrilled and honored. And I immediately said yes, before even consulting anyone. Uh, Tatum and I had sort of been working on a plan that we were like, oh, okay, where else in California can we live? There's some other places, maybe in Santa Barbara or other places in Southern California. And I called her right after that interview. And I said, okay, so Santa Barbara is great. How do you feel about New York? And she, again, was so, so supportive. And she said, that sounds amazing. And we very, very quickly, I'm talking about, I had the interview with the wine director, and then GM of 11 Madison Park, they said, can you be here in, I think it was three weeks that that training was going to start. So, you know, the next day I put in my notice at the winery, I started making arrangements to find an apartment in New York City, which is always a very easy task.
1: Well, and, it was relatively easy then, wasn't it? Because the, right. Because of right. the, I mean, it's still not easy, probably relative to a lot of places, but you know relative to new york historically speaking it's true
0: yeah that's that's a very good point i think that i i came in at a time where it was a little easier and so i basically moved you know up and moved and got everything together in my apartment in napa and moved to new york city uh having no clue really what i was doing and i had um at this point amassed a little bit more wine knowledge especially some deep knowledge of california and the napa valley which is. Uh, an amazing place that I'm still very, very partial to in my wine knowledge and taste. Moved out to New York, um, sort of like starry-eyed starry-eyed kid coming into the restaurant industry and and trying to learn everything about it.
1: That is a um a really great restaurant that is often on a list of best restaurants anywhere, including for its wine. How long did it take for the starry eyed to wear off, or did it ever wear off? It seems like the first, you know, week or so when you were there, it must have just been like, Are you freaking kidding me? It was like that. And I still am like that all the time. Um, and I should also say
0: before anyone that, works or has worked at 11 Madison Park calls me out. You mentioned that I started as a server. Well, it was even less than that. I started as a kitchen server, which is uh, essentially a nice word for a food runner. It's the person that uh, runs the food from the kitchen to the tables and it's the entry level position in the dining room at 11 Madison Park. So I, I truly started as the entry level employee, which was correct because I did not know how to carry a tray. I didn't know how to do something that they call open hand service, which is really important to what they do at 11 Madison Park and a lot of fine dining institutions. And I didn't know anything about restaurants at all. So I started from that level uh, at Kitchen Server and sort of worked my way through all the various roles in the dining room, which was a thrill and is a thrill. And I've been a sommelier at the restaurant, so on, on the wine team for almost two years now, which is really really amazing.
1: How long between kitchen server and then wearing a sweet suit like you guys are pictured on the website? <laughs>
0: fine, uh, fine dressed question. group
1: of folks on that, yeah. on that website. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's that's a perfect time to shout out to the entire sommelier team at Eleven Madison Park, my my brothers and sisters and the best people in the world. And, and in my mind, the best wine team in the world. Um, I believe it was a little less than a year. I'll call it maybe eight months Um, before I got to put on a suit. Uh, The roles in the dining room, I know everybody's curious to know every role in the dining room at 11 Madison Park, but the tier goes like this. It is kitchen server, you're wearing a vest. Assistant server, you're wearing a vest. That's when you sort of pour water and maybe even get to crumb a table. Very exciting. The role after that, which is when you do get to put on the suit, is server. And that is a really important role, maybe the hardest role at the restaurant where you do own the firing of all the tickets. So you're ringing in the order on the computer and you're in charge of you know the communication between uh, the dining room and the kitchen as well. You go and you talk to the chefs if there are any allergies or aversions or anything like that. So it can be a really, really important role. Above that is captain, which is sort of the, the head of the experience at the restaurant. That, that is what you guys might think of as in a traditional sense, your server or your waiter, the person who owns the experience between the guests at the table and the restaurant. And then after that, I became a sommelier. So uh sommelier, same as a captain in a lot of ways, except that they really, really focus on the beverage service. So wine, cocktails, beer, whatever it may be.
1: Hmm. Uh, I love talking about this stuff. You say our listeners might not be interested. Trust me, our listeners are interested in that stuff. So thank you for giving us the, those details. But it is time for your third song.
0: Absolutely. This This third song is indicative of that time at 11 Madison Park. It is a song that I have heard countless times. I've heard it every single day of my working life for the last three years because uh, it is not only a part of, but a crucial part of the dining room playlist at 11 Madison Park, which is an amazing, amazing collection of music. Uh, And this is the song to paint a picture for those listeners that are interested in, in this world is it plays every night around the same time. I think about 10, 10, 15 PM. And this is, I think one of very few songs on the dining room playlist at 11 Madison park that all of us on the team agree on. We all love this song. Everybody is sort of obsessed with it. And it's the song that gets everybody into a little bit of a groove. You know, everybody makes eye contact with each other, maybe a little bit of very subtle dancing, maybe a little head nod or two. Um, and it has sort of grown into a song that has a little bit of special meaning to us. It's, it's like the one song that comes on and everyone's like, oh, yeah, this, this one's coming on. And we give a little bit of a, an extra pep in our step. So I hope it gives you a little pep in your step as well as you listen to it.
1: How do you pronounce the artist's last name? Pip Millet. That's what I was going to say, but I was afraid it might be Malay. It um, could be. It could be, and if it is, I apologize to Mr. We're sticking with Millet. Um, That's a great picture. I love that. Um, You know, it's just like the little behind-the-scenes things just makes everything so much more human and and accessible, and I love it. Um, Yeah. This is song number three for our guest today, Nick Walters. This is June by Pip Millet from her EP Lost in June, released in 2020. You know, it's cool, and it's like obviously sort of the engine of this show, but you know, for the rest of your life, you hear that song, you know, you're going to be back on the floor of the restaurant with your peeps, you know?
0: Yeah, it's true. And I, I think of all the songs that do elicit some sort of emotional reaction, that one is emotional for me. That one does make me think of the amazing people that I work with and the amazing guests that we have at the restaurant. And like you said, will always transport me to a time walking around the floor of the dining room and it, it may, immediately makes me think of people like my friends, Marina and Martina and Stephanie and Alex and just making an eye contact with them on the floor. And I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that years from now that will be still that memory. And so pretty, pretty beautiful song on its own, but definitely with that, uh, that context
1: as well is, is really, really meaningful. How'd you get time off over the holidays? Seems like that'd be a hard time to get off. Thank you for bringing that up. Michael. I hope, that <laughs> there's, I, I there's hope the people you people just shouted out. Right to, now. I hope the people you shouted it out to aren't like, yeah, <laughs> he won the coin toss. <laughs> oh
0: my gosh! No, they definitely are. They definitely are. Uh, they're going to be listening to this, about to go into work, and be like, where he's at home? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and restaurant industry people around the world are. Are furious with me as well right now for having time off. It's true that uh, the holidays are a really busy, busy time. We are uh, lucky enough to be closed for a few days around Christmas, so we have uh, a little bit of time there. And then I, I picked, picked one route. So it's basically around the holidays. You typically, you know, you got to work a few of them. So I'll be working on New Year's Eve, uh, and I worked on Thanksgiving as well. Roger, um, Roger, that so kind of picked picked a couple a couple days around Christmas to be able to come back to St. Louis. And uh, you can't have them all, but you do. They're lucky enough, or we're lucky enough, I should say, that the restaurant gives us some time around at least one of those major holidays.
1: Uh, we're going to start the speed round now. But last question How did you meet uh, Rebecca and Ben? Oh, great question. Uh, Rebecca, I almost said Rebecca
0: Croningold. Rebecca Shaw and Ben Kronigold, who have been on the show, two of my dearest friends here in New York. Uh, and we met them in New York. They uh, were, and to some extent still are, neighbors with my girlfriend Tatum and so we met them in the neighborhood in the West Village uh, at a restaurant called Jeffrey's Grocery and they're going to laugh very hard that I'm telling this story on the podcast but it basically was we sat at the bar at our, our local restaurant which is right below their apartment and Tatum's apartment and it ended up that I was sitting next to Ben and, and the girls were on either side of us as well and I have a friend who's a bartender there. He brought over a plate of French fries and said, uh, Nick, are these, these, you order some French fries? And I said, no, not me, chef. And Ben being- <laughs> Did he make a pigeon idiot. joke? <laughs> did he make a what joke? <laughs> a pigeon joke. <laughs> nope, no pigeon joke, but he did make a joke about, that's funny. Uh, yeah. Re- Rebecca said there's 5,000 pigeons outside. Um. <laughs> um no, he said, oh, I noticed you called him chef. Are you perchance watching The Bear, the show? And I said, I do watch The Bear, but, but also I work in the restaurant industry. And that set off about a 30-minute conversation about what I do and about what they do. And really quickly, we were sort of just fast friends um, and stayed in touch, not only being neighbors and neighborhood friends, but uh, really transitioning into being some of our closest and, and first New York friends which is pretty incredible and they are just the best it was a joy to listen to them on your podcast and it's a joy to have them as as some of our dearest friends
1: must have been a trip seeing them on the tonight show the other day the last
0: week it or really whatever. was it really was I'm so glad that we could spend my podcast episode talking about them so let's do more uh no I'm just <laughs> <laughs> it was incredible they're the most talented writers and most talented comedians that I've ever met. And so to see them have that success uh, to be on the tonight show with Jimmy Fallon, which is a place that has such meaning to them and is also just an incredible marker at a, a point in your career was, was an emotional uh, event for all of us. So I, I'm so, so happy and proud of them.
1: I don't really even know them, barely. and It was an emotional event for me when I saw it pop up. I'm like, I know those people. <laughs> <laughs> you got them before Jimmy got them. Yeah, You, know, exactly. you had them on the show. Those um, are my guests. Okay, yeah. uh, speed round time. You ready? I'm ready. Uh, do you have a nickname that stuck over the course of your life that you'd be willing to share with our listeners? Mike um, I wish I always
0: wanted a nickname and I don't know why I wanted one but I did and I never got a good one I think Nick is a tricky name to make into a nickname which is in itself already a nickname my, my full name's is Nicholas um, everyone just calls me either Nick or they call me by my last name Walters uh, which was sort of like hockey teammates would call me by my last name I have a, a select few friends that call me Nicky which is like as close as it gets
1: to a nickname like the Adam Sandler movie like little Nikki. That's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> um, uh, when was the last time you bought music that had physical form? The last time I bought music that had physical form.
0: Excellent question. I bought. Mm, I bought a CD, would have been the last physical form. Um, and. It was ABBA. ABBA Greatest Hits CD. And my parents were obsessed with ABBA growing up. And when I was in high school, my Honda Pilot didn't have an aux cord. It only played CDs, but it could fit like eight of them, which was pretty cool. And I bought the ABBA Greatest Hits CD.
1: You know, if we ever get hit by like a giant EMP that takes out all the internet and stuff, your folks are going to be like the people with all the media.
0: They'll have a lot of control. And I... (laughs) think that that's completely their plan
1: um if you did karaoke and you couldn't do uh any dream will uh, do what song would you do (laughs) uh
0: i would do a duet for karaoke because i like to lean on people that have better singing voices than me and i would do it would be either i would do uh, a song called unworthy of your love which is a broadway show tune from the show The Assassins, and I would do that with my girlfriend, Tatum. That's sort of our surprise duet. And then the one in the works right now is uh, my coworker Stephanie Harris, who I mentioned uh, that I may be recommending at the end of this podcast for you to talk to, so you can bring this up with her, is we're currently practicing a duet from Wicked to bring up Wicked again, which is um, What Is This Feeling Uh, by Elphaba and Glinda from Wicked.
1: Um, What is your favorite episode or favorite moment from Survivor? Incredible question.
0: My favorite episode (laughs) or favorite moment from Survivor. Man, so many good ones. There is. I don't want to talk about the current season because it just ended on Wednesday night. I don't want to spoil anything for people that haven't seen it. So there was a lot in this current season. But my favorite of all time is I don't know the season number, but it's the season where a very famous villain, Russell, Russell with his little fedora um who everyone loves to hate was on the show and he said to the eventual winner spoiler alert of the season i won't say her name he says you're either with me or against me and she just very casually laying there she goes i'm against you russell (laughs) (laughs) and my girlfriend and i tatum and i say that to each other all the time in any context
1: if you were a championship wrestler what music would you enter to welcome to the jungle guns and roses what would your wrestler name
0: be? (laughs) Am I, am I like a pro wrestler in WWE? Sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, my pro wrestler name. Ben's going to be so mad at me that I don't know more about wrestling. Um, Okay. I would do a wine pun for my name because I would, my character would be something to do with wine. So um, I would be like, what's a wine pun in wrestling? Hulkmer Logan. (laughs) Is
1: that something? Oh, it is now. I'm gonna go Andre up. the giant glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> is there a formal name for a giant glass of wine? Is there like a like a like an industry term for an extra large glass of wine? Yeah,
0: what is it? It would just be like a Bordeaux glass or something like that or a huge bordeaux glass? Maybe it could be a stone cold Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. I, I thought of one right before and I thought I can't say this because no one will get it. So this one is only for my fellow sommeliers. This one is <laughs> Submission obrión, Like Submission the wrestling move and Mission obrión, the producer and board of I'm sorry, Mike.
1: I'm sorry. And and the episode. Oh no, bring it. <laughs> um uh what's the best wine, you know, you've ever had from your, you know, personal taste experience understanding? Mm.
0: That's an amazing question. And I have to say that working at a place like 11 Madison Park, which has such a world-class beverage program and wine program, has been the conduit for that. It's allowed me to taste wines that I would never have access to in my personal life. And frankly, that I would never be able to afford, even if I did have access to them. And it has allowed me the opportunity to taste some really, really priceless wines. um, Two that come to mind for me, are uh, one that maybe is a little recency bias, but it was just last week. Uh, I got to taste uh, champagne from my favorite producer of champagne, which is Krug. This was 1998 vintage of their Claude Ambenet, which is uh, a Blanc de Noir style of champagne that is really, really singular and you know on the list of the finest champagnes in the world. And that really blew my mind. It was a wine that I couldn't believe tasted the way it did and was so, so powerful and so special. And then the other one would be My birth year, 1995, uh, of Jean-Louis Chaves, uh, his Cuvée Catherine, which is a Syrah from the northern Rhône Valley in France, from my favorite winemaker in the world, which is Jean-Louis Chaves.
1: What activities or pursuits make you lose track of time the most? Blind tasting wine. Hmm. I guess you can't do
0: it for too long, though can't do it for too long. (laughs) And that's how I lose track of time is you're on a timer and I, I'm notorious for going a little long on my tastings and you you really got
1: to rein in the time. Um, any songs you'll avoid listening to for either style reasons or memory association reasons? Um, no, no genre that I avoid listening to. As I mentioned at the top, I think
0: my family and therefore my wine, (laughs) wine, music taste. Uh, is really really eclectic, so I listen to all genres. One one group of songs that I'll avoid is um, is sad songs. I don't listen to a lot of sad songs. I just have to be in the right headspace for it. So I'll listen to sad songs when I want to, you know, have a good cry on a road trip or something like that. But in my daily life, like walking around or going to work or certainly at the gym, sad songs are ones that I, I sort of stash away and save for a special occasion.
1: Hmm. Um, song you wish you could hear again for the first time ever.
0: Wow. Song I wish I could hear for the first time ever.
1: <laughs> it is from uh, a season of The Masked Singer. Are you familiar with this program, Mike? I, I Yeah, I am. I haven't seen it, but I'm familiar with its premise. I haven't really seen
0: it either, but there's one song that I've seen on YouTube and it's the Indiana Pacers guard, Victor Oladipo, a NBA basketball player. He sings, <laughs> he sings uh, Rainbow by Casey Musgraves. And it's sort of unexpected because not only he's a basketball player, but also he's dressed up as this crazy creature called Thingamajig, which is basically like Frankenstein. And he just has this beautiful voice. And I remember watching it a million times being like, this is such a cool video.
1: Was he? Is he like a tall basketball player? I mean, I know they're all tall, but is he like a one of the seven footers? So he's like this seven foot <laughs> Frankenstein singing with a mask on. You know, he's tall in the sense that all basketball players are tall. He's not seven feet
0: tall, but he is taller than probably uh, you or I. I don't know how tall you are, Mike, but taller than me. Uh, and so I think they disguised it a little bit with the costume to make it like look like he has... The costume has long limbs, or the costume has a really tall hat, huh. you know, or a tall head. Um, and I'm really glad we could bring up The Masked Singer. I'm sure everybody wants to talk about that on this program.
1: Oh, that's what we love about this show. <laughs> you just never know where it's going to go. Um, if you could broadcast a song into the head of all humans in a magical collective moment, which song would it be?
0: Paradise City, Guns and Roses. I'm sorry to keep bringing up Guns and Roses, but that song puts me in a good mood every time.
1: Have you seen any of the modern uh, Axl Rose, what he's out there doing? It's not good. I have not, actually. What's just, he out there doing? Well, just, you know, performing, in air quotes, his songs. <laughs> but he uh, he has oh, fallen no. mightily, I would Oh, say. no. Oh, well, I,
0: I must admit I was panicked for a second when you said, have you seen what he's out there doing? I thought I immediately pictured Axl Rose doing something very very problematic or inappropriate which i'm glad here isn't happening at least that we know of um i i've seen guns and roses live twice in my lifetime once when i was really young and then once the very first reunion tour that they did and i'm i think this was before it has fallen mightily because it, it was pretty awesome when i saw it like let's call it 10 or 12 years ago
1: we usually ask what would your 14-year-old self think of who you are today, but I'm going to bump it back just a little bit further to you on that trip with your iPad iPod video. It's funny how we can't um, say yeah. iPod anymore because the uh, iPads, the we iPod just go to video. IPad. Yeah. What uh what would your, you know, 12 or 13-year-old self think of who you are and what you're doing? You know, I think my 12 or 13-year-old self would be
0: equal parts Thrilled and also a little confused. And I think that's exactly what Ben and Rebecca said about their career as writers. Um, so I'm gonna partially steal that because I think I did not know that this was a possible route to take not only in my life, but in anyone's life. Um I think I think that in being a sommelier, I have sort of achieved this this career and this daily daily routine of doing truly only the things that I love and care about, which is interacting with people, meeting new people, and bringing them really special experiences through wine. And so I think my 12 or 13-year-old self would say, that is amazing because I'm you know, having so much fun on a daily basis, which is true. And then I think he would have questions. I think he would say, you know, what is... What is, uh, what is Bordeaux and why are you making wrestling puns about it?
1: And why don't you have a hockey stick in your hands? And where is the hockey stick,
0: Nick, please? <laughs> no, I still play men's league hockey. Don't worry. Don't worry that 12 or 13-year-old Nick, and I'll be playing in my alumni high school hockey game in just about two days.
1: Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, okay, well you've done it. Is there any th- uh, No, we have to have you recommend your three people. I don't want to get ahead of things. So yeah, time for you to recommend your three people that you'll share this with who you think we might be able to get on. Absolutely. I'm thrilled to, uh, to continue
0: the trend because I do listen to the show and and love what you guys do. And I think these three people will be excellent. Not only excellent uh, additions to the show, but also all three of them, like most of your guests, have a much, much more in-depth knowledge of the world of music than me. So I think this is my, um, this is me making up for the fact that I was bringing up The Masked Singer. So here they are. Uh, (laughs) The first one is Katie, Katie Garcia, uh, a dear friend and also badass Woman in music, uh, she's the VP of A&R at Capitol Records here in New York City, and is just the the coolest, most knowledgeable person in the world of contemporary music. And uh, represents people like Maggie Rogers, and has taken uh, Tatum and I to countless concerts. And as I've told her, I'll never go to another concert without her again because it's not fun to not go with somebody <laughs> in the music industry like her. Cool. The next one is uh, my dear friend Rashad Jones. Rashad, a little bit more from the restaurant industry side of things, but definitively music background. He's the general manager at Illis, a restaurant in Greenpoint, in New York, that was just actually named, I think, the the restaurant of the year by Esquire magazine. Really incredible uh, fine dining knowledge, and and before that, a classically trained cellist with perfect pitch, which you must ask him about, and also. Just the the tastemaker, I think. In in all ways, he has really, really incredible taste in fashion, in music. Tastemaker is a really good wrestler name. I'm just <laughs> saying. God, that's good. God, can we go back? Add that in. I, you know what I thought of Undertaster, the Undertaster. Oh, there we go. <laughs> tastemaker is better though. Okay, that's good. Um, and the final one. Also from the world of wine. I mentioned her earlier in the podcast. We are working on a duet. So uh, maybe ask her how our our rehearsals are going. Her name is Stephanie Harris. Uh, Stephanie is a fellow sommelier at 11 Madison Park, a dear, dear friend and colleague, uh, and just one of the the sharpest minds I know and has uh, an amazing ear for music. She's also a classically trained singer. She sang opera and uh, was involved in musical theater basically her whole life before moving into the world of wine and we're, we're lucky to have her in wine. So I'm sure she'll, she along with Katie and Rashad will all have much more tasteful references
1: than, than mine throughout the podcast. Cool. Well, this will come out in a few weeks, then you can put this in their hands and connect us with them and we'll do our best. Um, you, now you've done it. Do you have any final thoughts you want to leave us with Nick? It's been great talking to you. The rock E minerality,
0: Rocky minerality. That's my final wrestling <laughs> <laughs> No, I like what's, I think Hulkmer Logan at the beginning. I think that one has thinking. a real ring to it. I think that's the one. So that's your final thought. That's my final thought. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, and, and I look forward uh, to listening to more people that know more about music than me.
1: Cool. Thank you. Thank you this week's Partington. We're going back a year to episode number 249 guest, Dave Lapham. He spent almost two decades as a professional guitar tech touring the world with bands and musicians like Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Billy Idol, and many more. Dave grew up in Michigan, surrounded by rock and punk music of the 1970s. He was totally into guitars, muscle cars, and skateboarding, but his first song, Summer Breeze by Seals and Crofts, was one his mom brought into his life, and he said it will forever. Take Take him back to the idyllic summers of his childhood.
2: My mom worked in the auto industry, and so she was working like crazy hours. And then at one point, wasn't working because 1980 everything collapsed. And my dad was looking for jobs, and you know, not really settling into where he was going to be yet. But being in the car so much with them, and being around cars and music and other stuff and my mom listened to like that kind of more easy listening stuff. Barry Manilow The Carpenters Seals and Croft, Dan Folgerberg like all that stuff and those songs would come on and like I think I realized that I liked all kinds of music and that song in particular I listened to it from beginning to end and I love it and it reminds me of Summer in Michigan it reminds me being a kid and all of us playing in the neighborhood and riding our big wheels and like yeah it just makes me happy and comforted every time i hear it
1: We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is host and online content producer. Our production assistant is Jared Gonzalez, Chris is executive producer. And our theme song was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. Keep listening.